Welcome to another distinct nostalgia by MIM. Brought to you in partnership with Life Rooms and Mersey Care NHS Foundation Trust. Staying well, staying home. Welcome to another celebration of great British film from Distinct Nostalgia. And this time we're going back to the mid-1990s and a movie which became a hit all around the world. Set in South Yorkshire and loosely based on the trials and tribulations of the mining community of Grimethorpe and their colliery brass band, Brassed Off is one of those classic triumph over adversity stories which Britflix have become so well known for. It helped to repopularise brass band music the world over, and the film's version of Concierto de Aranjez created a whole new fan base for the Spanish composer Rodrigo's famous piece, which some nickname Orange Juice. The film had a fabulous cast, including Pete Postlethwaite, Ewan McGregor, Tara Fitzgerald, Sue Johnston and Stephen Tompkinson. And Stephen has been reminiscing about the iconic British film with Ashley. Stephen, lovely to talk to you about Brassed Off mainly. I grew up in a mining community actually in South Yorkshire, not far from uh, uh, Grimethorpe, which of course it's lo- loosely based upon. And and of course you're from the northeast as well. Uh, I'm from Yorkshire, you're from the northeast. You know all about mining and all the rest of it. What do you think what do you think when you first got asked about doing this was this something that sort of you thought would come natural to you well it was something that i was i was very passionate about and then when i got to london 1984 there was still a lot of miners on the streets and the coal not doll buckets and uh and i joined the student union quite early and we we got two of them in to uh, the embassy theater there uh, which was central's theater just to talk about their lives and why they were on strike and what it meant to them. And, you know, the the conditions sounded absolutely horrendous, uh, particularly to a lot of people who were at drama school in Swiss Cottage in London. Uh, but you understood the history of it and what it meant to people. It's, it's more than a job. It was It was a piece of history. And to be betrayed by the only people who were supposed to be there to protect you, which is the government, you know, it was... What 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 could they do? Um, so it was always uh, a story that was very, very uh, raw to me and mattered to me. And when Mark's script came along, I thought it was it was just beautifully told. Um, I didn't think I was I was going up for the part of Phil. I thought when when I'd read it, it was maybe the part it was the part of Andy uh, that that Ewan ended up playing um, because I hadn't done uh, any any big films before at all um so I, I didn't know mark herman and i got into to talk to him about it and uh, and he said no no it's phil that we want you to do and i and i couldn't believe it and it was an offer um so he's i, I, I nearly fainted i think it was uh, because phil's story sort of spans all the others as well uh and he's a desperately sad character, and you know, in a in a film where the outlook was always quite bleak, apart from you know when the band are all dressed in the uniforms, the only real splash of colour you see is when Phil's attempting to do his very awful children's entertaining. Um, so it was it was a magical part for me, and I was I was so thrilled to get it, and uh, I had no idea that it would turn out as good as as. You originally thought you you always think that every project you're going to do is going to be brilliant, 
he at least hoped so. And but this one, you know, surpassed all of the all of the immediately beautiful images that you had in your head when you read the script. I thought Mark captured it and added much more to it after that. Okay, we'll talk about the film in a moment, but let's just take us back in your life to that period. We're talking about the nine, mid nineteen nineties, so we're now what? Oh God, <laughs> we twenty five years ago. Yeah, twenty five years ago, really, aren't we? What had you been? Do, what had you been doing just before uh, Brastoff? Um, I just started work on the first series of Bally Kiss Angel. Um, and Drop the Dead Donkey was still uh, running at the time, and I suppose it was it was Drop the Dead Donkey that then got me seen uh, into slightly more leading roles, um, and Balikis Angel came along. Um, so it was in between Balikis Angel starting that uh, we then got to film Brassed Off, and uh, it all sort of took off for me in a way after that. I mean, there's nothing more different, really, is there, from Drop the Dead Donkey and Balakis Angel? <laughs> no, no, absolutely. So, and then there was Brastoff. So it was, uh, I was, I was spoiled rotten. Fabulous, fabulous. Now, British film at the time, obviously, we'd had a big film industry way, way back, and then I think the 1980s came along, and it, we started to get it revitalised a bit more because Channel Four came along and invested, didn't it, in different things? Um, and then, so there was a few here and there, but. The industry wasn't huge, was it? I mean, what was the what was what was the history behind it getting off the ground, Brastoff? Do you know? Uh, well, it was it was film four. Um, I know Mark Mark had had uh, a feature out before then called "Blame It on the Bellboy," um, but this and I think the opportunity came around from from Channel Four, and it was. Uh, they 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 were amazing. They were they were sort of gently present, but let let Mark and and the cast do do our own thing, and were amazingly supportive to it. Once it came to you know getting distribution and getting the the posters out there and what have you, because we didn't have a lot of money for publicity. Um, and I've often said, you know, and from from a nation still scarred by Terry Wogan doing the floral dance, brass, we didn't know that brass band music was going to be that popular. Um, and it, it just became uh, a real word of mouth people's film. It it stayed in the top ten in London for for nearly three or four months, I think. And it, it, we eventually had to go up and ask them to stop showing it in Leeds. Because it was going to ruin the uh, the video launch date, um, but it did. It, it it just became a word of mouth film, and it, and people could see it was an honest story, honestly told. I hope. Now, at this particular moment in time, the mid nineteen nineties, there was still the you know the semblance, some semblance of a pit industry still in existence. You know, certain mines are still there, weren't they? So you had these communities, these communities that were living and eating and breathing still, you know, the pits kind of thing. Um, I suppose that was quite. I mean, if you'd done it ten years later, they probably all disappeared. So in a, in a way, you you were lucky in that sense, weren't you? Because you could draw on that, couldn't you? Absolutely. We got to film in Hatfield, Maine, which was where we did all the all the real mining sequences and going up and down in the the pit shaft. Um, and I, that was Hatfield, Maine, was one of the first places where they got a redundancy package and bought the mine back themselves because they knew there was a great history of coal still down there, 
Um, and I don't think that that suited Mrs T that, uh, well, all we've done is hand over the enterprise to them and they're running it at a profit. And she wanted to teach them more of a lesson than that. So, you know, Grimethorpe had three shafts that were just cemented over. There was 99 years worth of coal down there that they knew about at that stage. And there was billions of pound worth of equipment that just got cemented over and, and buried so that was the next step. Uh, all you could do with your redundancy money then was attempt to buy your house back in in the town where the shops and everything else was already closing. Um, and it was it was it was very cruel. I think people were treated really cruelly, and it was a shameful part of our recent British social history. And we uh, we I don't think we went over the top. In our condemnation of it all, we were we were talking about real, f- real people and real feelings. And actually, some of those communities, you know, I uh, I go back there quite a bit because my parents are still over there. Some of those communities still haven't recovered, to be honest. You know, there's, there's, they're so isolated, and you know, there's nothing there, and all right, and they've never recovered from that period. So um, it's it's very very sad. But you're saying there that. Hatfield, uh, you know, the, the, the miners themselves decided to take on things themselves and run things themselves. Obviously, what happened in Brastoff was that they they went a different route, didn't they? And they went for focusing everything on the on the brass band and making that turn into something special. Were you aware that brass bands were so big in mining before you did this uh, film? We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Know what I mean? So do do your homies uh got a role in your, in your little, you mean? Yeah, yeah. We all, we all artists over here, man. I'm trying, already? Yeah, I'm trying, yeah. I'm trying, I'm trying, oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. yeah. Me, me, me. We all artists, man. We go, you feel me? We going to have this, like... Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kyle, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit. Right with this I got lie, we play with this shit right now for for. Oh, I don't, play, don't play with it. No. Take that shit serious. Well, I think I think you'd heard, but you didn't know how much it it it, it was as as much as as uh, some blokes feeling that the football team represents them. It it was. Individually, for, for collieries, the, the brass band was a way of taking it from underground and, and blasting it out loud and proud, as, as they do. And, and that's, that seemed to define areas as well, uh, and the local competitions and all that that we, that we tried to show. Um, it's, it's, it mattered a great deal to people, and still does. And that, yeah, it still goes on, doesn't it? In the Pennines, there's all these uh, competitions every single year between the different bands. They take it take it very, very seriously, don't they? Oh, very, very seriously. I mean, we had to soften the truth down of uh, of the the Grimethorpe lads because when it, we said in the film that it was a fortnight after the pit shut down that they had the the finals at the Royal Albert Hall. Um, just to buy us some story time, really, and and get Gloria's story finished, get her redundancy, so she was able to take her check and make it possible for the band to go. Because in reality, for for Grimethorpe, it was two days after their pit was shut that they became national champions of Britain. 
and they they didn't think they'd ever play together again. So something very special happened that day, and we wanted to emulate that as well. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll go back to Grimethorpe in a minute because it was called Grimly in the film, wasn't it? Um, but you, it was I know it was loosely based on Grimethorpe. Yeah, it was a sort of amalgamation of Grimethorpe and Frickley. Yes, yes, indeed. I I spent a lot of my childhood in South Empsall, which is next door to Frickley. Ah, yes, yeah, where Chris Walker's from. Yes, 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 yes. So, talking about the film itself, though, in terms of the cast, fantastic cast, when you look back, so many great people. Had you worked with any of them before? Um, I'd worked briefly with Phil Jackson before. We'd done a, a radio series together and, a, and a, a TV comedy that wasn't great. What was that one? It was it was called Downwardly Mobile. Yeah, I don't remember it. <laughs> uh, it was about a, a very yuppie couple. It was two brothers. Phil and I were brothers. I was a real yuppie, and he was a harpsichord maker. And uh, I'm married to Josie Lawrence, and Phil's married to Francis de la Tour, who was, uh, provided therapy for... for um, the local destitute people, so there was not much money in their house, and then the big crash happened, and Josie and I were forced to go and live with them with hilarious consequences. I'll have to look that one up. <laughs> no, I wouldn't bother. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I knew Phil. And Peter Gunn, who uh, who is the, he plays Simmo, the character that's always betting you and at pool. I've known Peter since I was 14, he knew my brother first. They worked together at Holt Jackson's Book Company in Lytham, next Lytham St Anne's, next door to Blackpool. Um, so I first met Peter when I was doing my geography homework, and he came in one night. And uh, he's one of the funniest men I know. And he's an absolute diamond to work with. And uh, I, I was very, you know, keen to follow in his footsteps because he'd gone to drama school a couple of years before me, and uh, he, he thought I'd be all right. You not worked with Ewan before? No, no, I hadn't. But uh, but what a treat that was! I mean, Ewan's. Uh, I, I mean, it was all, a lot of it was very new to me, uh, and Mark was very encompassing of um, being, getting everyone together and watching the rushes if they wanted to see it, and then at weekends we'd get to go and watch it on a on a big screen in an Odeon thing, watch the rushes there. And uh, I learned an awful lot from Ewan, who's, you know, he's a, a proper movie actor. The camera adores him and his his movement is very controlled. And, you know, I was excited and moving around and, and you really don't need to when your head is sort of 50 foot tall. So I was I was learning on the job and, and taught by some great people. Mainly Mr. Postlethwaite, of course. Of course, we'll talk about Mr. Postlethwaite in a second. But with Ewan, it was around the same time as Train Spotting, wasn't it? Had he done that already? Yeah, he'd, he'd, he'd finished filming that, and he, he'd had a big series on the BBC. Um, so yeah, things things were really happening for Ewan, and you know, and he had umpteen bookings after Brast Off was finished and the rest of us didn't really know what we were doing. <laughs> so Pete Possesweight, sadly, obviously no longer with us. Fantastic actor, you know, not just in this, but in loads and loads and loads of things. I mean, tell us a bit about him as, just as a person and what it was like to work with him. Um, well, it was amazing. I mean, Pete was the other person that I, that I had worked with before. I did my first ever uh, 
TV series with him, which was three episodes of a thing called Tales of Sherwood Forest, which had nothing to do with Robin Hood. It was a, an Alan Plater uh, script-supervised drama, and Neil Mackay was one of the writers who did my story. Um, and, and Pete was playing this... Um, ex-university, I think he was a technical drawing instructor, come professor, whatever. But he wanted to jack it all in because his his secret passion was to open Rick's Cafe American in Nottingham and, and, and be Humphrey Bogart. And whenever he got in trouble, it was a bit like Billy Liar style. It went black and white and you were in Rick's Cafe American and, and Pete was Bogart and looked amazing. And we met on that and, and got on really well and uh, so I couldn't believe me luck when I knew he was playing my dad and uh, he rang me a, a couple of weeks before we started filming and said, Tom, let's, let's go down to Grimey and uh, we'll, we'll do a bit of research. We'll get the accent right and we'll We'll listen to the stories, and you know, and and probably do a lot of drinking as well, which which we did, um, and we got affiliated into the into the miners club, and uh, and wanted to let people know that that Mark's script was very genuine. We weren't going to stitch them up in any way or, or over schmaltzy, make it all American. It was the scripts were available, and people really liked it, and they were they gave us amazing support. The people of Grindthorpe. I'll never be able to thank him enough. Just paint us a picture, because I say that you know this was a period when the mines still existed to an extent. What was what was a you know a local club like that like when you went in there? You know, tell us what it was. What was the atmosphere like? It was busy, but um, you know, but people said you'd be you'd be all right if you, if you come in. You know, I think it was a Monday, and said. Uh, by by then, people will have seen you because Thursdays when they when they collect for the week, and it was only a matter of ten p. But they said, you know, if if you're in early enough, like from Monday, he might forget, and ten p mattered to people, and so you were very aware of that. Um, and uh, we'd also been told that they'd had a like a local TV news people go around and do a report on Grimethorpe, something like 12 months after the pit had shut down, where a lot of buildings were boarded up, and apparently, sort of like Damien Dane dropped the dead donkey style, they were giving kids stones to throw through windows, and basically saying that it had, you know, become like Lord of the Flies, and everything was going, and it was, and they really felt kicked in the teeth by that, so when they knew there was another film crew coming down... That's why we we were very uh, over deliberate in in letting them know this was their story, and uh, and after that, they couldn't have been more supportive. Yeah, I can imagine them being quite you know suspicious of it in a way because the media does have a habit, doesn't it? Of well, the news media generally kicking you while you're down. Yeah, and just and and twisting it all basically and changing it into something it's not, you know, um, and and sort of you know that they are. I mean having grown up in that area, you know, they are, these are salt of the earth communities, aren't they? In the sense that, and if you're loyal to them and, you know, you don't do the dirty on them, they'll, they'll repay you, won't they, in terms of their support? Absolutely. But, uh, you know, they, they, were, they were very much still scarred by what that government had done to them. And, and a lot of them still are. 
and rightly so. Now, the core of this, of course, is about the brass band and about uh, brass band music. And as we have said already, they take it very seriously. So the authenticity of that, as well as being minors, but the authenticity of being a brass band is really, really important. Take us through a bit of that and how you managed to do that. I, I know I've heard stories before. We've, you and I have talked about this before. Um, you know, tell us a bit about that. And, and did, did any of you take to it better than others? <laughs> um, well, I, coincidentally, I had played the tenor horn at school. So, uh, but now I was moving on to the slide trombone. So I, I wasn't too phased about being able to get the breathing right. But, um, at any one time, the, the, each instrument split up into groups of three. So I had two other, the two other trombone players on my right. So I could look at them out the periphery of my right eye and try and keep up as best I could. Uh, but knowing that we were slightly covered as well, because at some point those three uh, trombones will be playing different notes anyway. Uh, but no, I, I think that the first time the cast uh, met as a whole was to go to Abbey Studios, Abbey Road Studios, and listen to the the band being recorded for the film. Um, and you, you know, you in a studio like that, the the power of when when they give it full throttle to playing uh, either Rodrigo's or or Danny Boy. I mean, we, we all had to avoid looking at each other when they were recording Danny Boy because it it was beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And uh, and also, the, you know, the flugel solo in, in Rodrigo is is amazing. And they're, they're as subtle and as deft as any orchestra in the world. They're amazing. So, I, and I think when it was, it was a great idea that we got to listen to them recorded at their best in the most famous recording studio in the world because it really G'd us up to make them proud. So we worked very hard. We sat in on a lot of rehearsals with the band and we practised the marching outside and all that. And, and then, you know, because they were required to do a lot of acting as well. They were in an awful lot of scenes. So um, the first... A uh, few days was was just spent in the rehearsal, filming the band's rehearsal room and all those scenes, and and I think after a while they they had a lot of respect for us as well. So um, and we're still we're still very still very tight, and if there's if the 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 call goes out, we all rally round it. It's uh, it's still an amazing feeling uh, when people have been so moved by Brastoff, and and it's meant so much to them. But how do you, as an actor, replicate that whole thing of, you know, when they, they've got, you've got to get, you know, you get your mouth around the, the, you know, the musical instrument, and you've got to really show the power and the puff in your face, kind of thing. I mean, I mean that must be quite hard. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, it was, and it's a lot of practice, and then a lot of saving yourself for when you know the camera's coming round. Um, so you know certain bits is when you've got to look at your best and you ask a lot of advice from the real players to make sure you're not too much out of position. I mean, do, doing that's easy. Just the old the old fingering under three. But but no, we, we, we were more conscious than anyone of not wanting to let them down because they're, they're a brilliant band, a great bunch of fellas. And, of course, the other thing that this did was 
um, I've got to know in recent years, Cecilia Rodrigo, Rodrigo's daughter, uh, who'd done a fair, several few projects with her. And she tells a story that she was asked, you know, whether or not this, the, the, this piece could be licensed for the film. And she doesn't give it to everybody. I mean, she gets asked about this all the time. Well, I'd, I'd heard that, that Mark, the director, Mark Herman, wrote, wrote to them in Spanish and sent a recording of the band doing it. And then, yes, we were, we were given permission. Uh, and, it, and it's such a crucial moment in the film. I was delighted that it, it did get that. And people still call it orange juice, which is lovely. They do. But what's interesting about it is that that obviously is a hugely famous piece of music, which lots of people know of, but they don't really know the name of it and they're not quite sure whether... But actually, Brastoff brought it to a new generation, didn't they, really, in a way? Yeah, and, and and gave it a new sound. I mean, it is a guitar concerto, and uh, it, it it was right that we had to ask permission because we're giving it a completely different sound. And just thrilled that they that they went with it. And, and in a way, actually, the film also helped the, just the brass band community as a whole, didn't it? In terms of brass band music, because suddenly it was everywhere again. You know. Yes, and, and, and a lot of youngsters were taking it up and a lot of girls as well were, were joining bands that hadn't before and, uh, you know, from silver bands upwards. And it's, uh, it's really refreshing to hear. And, um, and I heard that the band were, were struggling a bit a number of years ago, um, you know, because they rely very heavily on advertising and things like that. So there's a lot of them and whatever fee they get has to be split between them and... Uh, there, there weren't a great deal of bookings coming in, and so I, you know, I went on TV to try and promote them as best I could, and and I'm still desperate to follow that up. I would love to get some kind of audience with uh, Prince Charles and say a lot of bands that have been playing for hundreds of years that really represented not only the colliery but that area. And, still play even though the collieries have gone and the thought of wiping that off the map completely would be heartbreaking and it's such a uniquely British sound that I, you know to form a, a royal society of brass bands of you know former members who've been playing that long I just think that would help them in the future when when they need uh, someone to to sponsor them etc uh, so Fingers crossed, I'm, I'm still looking. Yeah, I mean, it's still, it's still a thriving um, musical genre, isn't it? People, you know, young people, in the, it's, you've got generations, haven't you, of, of families who are, who are still going into, into brass banding, in the, in the Pennines in particular, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's a big, big thing. As well as amazing TV and film nostalgia, this podcast is also home to an epic radio quiz where listeners just like you go head-to-head on their favourite TV shows and films and put their general knowledge to the test. There's a bonus point if you can sing the theme tune, but I know you're not going to, are you? Skippy, 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 the bush kangaroo is all I can remember. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that earns you a point. Yeah, I'll go for that. The fifth season of the Distinct Nostalgia Mind of the Month quiz is almost here, and it needs you. Prisoner Cell Block. Cell Block B. Prisoner Cell Block H. Oh. Simply choose your favourite TV show or film 
and get in touch at distinctnostalgia.com. Have a go at three British films. Just have a guess. Oh, Whistle Down the Wind, Carry On Up the Kyber. Um, no, this is rubbish. I'm sorry. No, I don't <laughs> that, know. <laughs> that, they're not bad attempts, actually. And the two leading minds from across the month compete head-to-head in the final for a coveted Distinct Nostalgia mug. It's almost like a trophy. The Mind of the Month quiz. What kind of programme was The Smoking Room? Oh, I've never heard of it. I don't know oh. if I can accept that. Returns in October. That's the cracker, isn't it? They uh, always are. <laughs> Only here. If nobody was told what you were meant to do, if there weren't any rules, we would be living in a totally different format. A brand new podcast featuring rarely heard voices from across the UK and around the world. Bisexuality is not really understood because people have biphobic tendencies. And the second you mention bisexual, just their ears pick up. Contemporary conversations around bisexuality. Oh, well, you're still confused, right? No, I'm not confused. We are questioned so much more than people when they come out as straight or gay. It's intense pressure of like, am I sure? You're literally like monitoring yourself. Every episode will include a very personal story as we try to paint a real picture of bisexual Britain. This is Bisexual Brunch. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. Space. Not so long ago. In a time of intergalactic turmoil, the peaceful tyranny of the Galactic Empire is forever being threatened by evil anarchist forces. What was that? Morning. Anarchist forces have launched a surprise attack on a Sun Crusher's outer defense craft. Only the Sun Crusher space station can bring order back to the Empire. This is not a drill, although they probably are using drills. And only one man and one robot have the administration skills to keep bureaucracy burning bright. You are so anal. I don't be ridiculous, Brack. I don't even have an anus. That's an exhaust port. Meet Brack Nubar. That's my payslip, isn't it? It's completely blank. And X769C. My gang homebound has been engaged and my suicide mission protocols are on standby. Thrill as they take on giant brides and evil geniuses. She's beautiful. Really? She looks like a giant calculator on steroids. Gasp as they look death squarely in the face and then run away. Down a garbage chute. I'm not going down there. Written and performed by Ian McNess and Richard Delafield. Stop stroking yourself. It creeps me out. <clears throat> you don't get heroes like this. Kill me now, just get it over with. Well, I do have this letter. Creep space. You okay now? Yes. So I can stop holding your hand? Yes. Available every Saturday on Distinct Comedy. Search for Distinct Comedy wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, brass bands are like a lot of things historically, were very male-dominated. You mentioned that a lot of girls have started to come into brass, and that's great. Um, But obviously, generally, that has not been the case. But the great thing about Brass Doff was, of course, one of the central parts of the story was Tara Fitzgerald's role, wasn't it? Tell us a a, a bit about that, and uh, about her, but also how what an important part of the story that was. Yes, a a male-dominated world. Um, But someone comes in with as much passion for it through through her relative who was at uh, at the pit the same time as Pete's character so she she's coming back um and it turns out that she works for management doing these feasibility studies that have to be seen to be written but not written to be seen and then of course she you know she meets up with her childhood sweetheart 
and uh, and it's it's a beautiful it's a beautiful bit of the of the whole story and it's kind of through her that you're introduced to the other guys missuses because um i think you know that uh, sue johnson's character was absolutely brilliant and just that yeah i think i think it was it was tara's character that opened the doors to uh, to not make it so so male dominated and 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 it was very important i think and actually in reality in south yorkshire in fact in doncaster area i think if you remember rightly there was a big group of women that set up a thing called women against pit closures in the 1980s and 90s wasn't there so women were very much part of it you know yeah and we uh, you know we had, we had little roughly's character leading the the chance on that and 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 it it looked miserable and it looked desperate and that's that's exactly what it was but they were desperate desperate times now it was a british film low budget i'm sure was there a lot of pressure to get it done in a specific amount of time and what was the pressure like on the actors and the crew well we never particularly got to feel that because everything was was so well managed um and 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 mark took his time we we all bonded together really well as an ensemble, and no, we, ne- we never felt we never felt that rush. We were very keen to all do our bit, so we didn't hold it up in any way, because you were desperate to make make the. If you just made one person happy, you wanted it to be Mark Herman, and uh, no, I never never felt any any pressure. I mean, I'm I'm sure you end up shooting a lot of stuff that gets edited out anyway but it was it was pretty much everything that was in the script any funny stories any things that happened that were sort of that, that caught you unawares during the uh, period you were doing it um well there was the first time i think that pete and i were were in the miners club and uh an old boy came round to the two of us sitting there and he said now, now let me get this read Pete's the band leader. I said, yeah, yeah, he is. And that's playing his son. I said, yeah, that's right. Then he looked at Pete and he looked at me. I bet that's glad they takes after the mother. That's a bit cheeky to Pete. But um, but very typical of the humour. It was very, it was sort of doer. Pete, Pete was playing uh, snooker. We were allowed on the snooker table, which was a big, a big uh, thing of acceptance. And uh, it was it, Pete was a good snooker player, and it came down to the colours. And Pete had played a safety shot where the green was at one end and the cue ball was at the other. And uh, so this old boy that Pete was playing, he was walking to one end of the table, looking at it from the the white ball's perspective. And he walked all the way around to the other, and he had a look at the green from there. And he started to line up the shot, and his mate went, "I won't worry, Pete. He don't go that far on his holidays." <laughs> <laughs> So I think it was once the humour started from that, you know, you knew that we we were having a, an arm round the shoulder. So it was nice. Fabulous, fabulous. You've definitely got the accent there. That is definitely the accent from that particular part of South Yorkshire. Most certainly, most certainly. Um, yeah, very authentic, very authentic. Um, yeah, so um, obviously, it, it, as you said at the beginning, you know, it was a... Well, I mean, was it a runaway success straight away, or did it take a while to sort of get noticed? Um, well, we, we'd had the uh, advantage of it being in lots of festivals as well, um, and it did 
particularly well in Spain. Spain, when it wasn't even in competition, it ended up winning a couple of awards for something. And it had, it had won awards in Germany, and it, it won the César for um, Best Foreign Film in, in, in that the, the sort of French equivalent of the, the Oscars or BAFTAs. Um, and we were, we were asked to open the Sundance Film Festival as well with it, which was, which was enormous. So it was an early export success for us then, for Britain, in a way. It was, it was, it was popular around the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. Um, but it is such a, a universal story of that, of when industries are being closed by your government. It's, where do you turn to? So, uh, yeah, there was, there'd been a lot of good buzz about it. And as I say, as soon as it got released, it, uh, it, it sort of went up to about number four, I think, and then hovered, didn't go out of the top ten for, for ages. And people just kept talking about it. If I remember rightly, it was around that time as well, because I was getting mixed up as to when which came first, but obviously just down the road was another film which became very successful. Full Monty, yeah. The Full Monty. So it was a bit of a, a period of real success for British films, wasn't it? Definitely. And, uh, you know, people were were then a bit more au fait with the political time that it has set in and what it was all about. Uh, and that the, you know, it's the, it's the human beings that get left behind as a result of all these massive changes. And the human story of that was very evident in both films. Yeah, I mean, that was about the steelworks, wasn't it, basically? And, and, and which is just down the road. Um, so both of them, and a bit like... A lot of these British films do have a common theme, don't they? Now, whether this is a good thing or not, or whether it's a bit of a cliche, I don't know. But it just seemed to make them popular in certain... I mean, certainly the Americans seem to like it. When, it, when it's, you've got this sort of triumph over adversity. Do you think that is part of his success, really? Yes, I think it probably is. And, and reminiscent of, uh, you know, a lot of the kitchen sink dramas that had come before and, you know, the the rise of Albert Finney and Tom Courtney and things like that. It was a, an echo back to those those dramas as well. What do you think it did for your career? I mean, basically, there are... I mean, you've done stuff before, big stuff before, Balakas Angel and, and Drop the Dead Donkey. And I know it did quite a lot for each of the other ones. You know, everyone's gone on to other things. But just specifically on your career, what, what did it help you do after that, do you think? Um, well, it's, it's because, the, you know, the emotional journey for Phil was so vast. I think it gave me the confidence to think I could I'd, I'd, I was brave enough then to tackle anything because uh, I'd had such guidance from Pete and from Mark and the support of the rest of the the cast were, were was invaluable to me um, and yeah it gave me the confidence to just go yeah I can, I can hold my head up now I think I'm, I'm still more proud of Brastoff than anything else I've done, and I think I knew at the time it was it was very special, and it's it's never waned. I was going to ask you that. I was going to ask you where did it sit in all the different things you've done, because you've done some really interesting. I mean, Wild at Heart was fabulous in the sense that where you got to go, you know, where you got to film and everything. It wasn't as wild as Doncaster. <laughs> so you'd you'd put Brastoff at the top, would you? Yeah, absolutely, uh, and just because of the. The impact that it's had on the people it was meant to, uh, you know, the the people whose story we were telling, and and lots of similar 
stories for for many families up and down the country that have been affected by these pit closures. Now you said earlier on that you you'd had a little bit of history when you were younger at playing instruments, and then you got to do all this in Brastoff. I know you were faking it to an extent in Brastoff, but yes, absolutely. Me and Jimmy Stewart, we 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 love miming a trombone. <laughs> Has it encouraged you to take up any musical instruments since? No, but it has. Uh, I have kept in touch with the band and I've done various bits of uh, filming for, you know, like one show reports and and that sort of stuff. And um, so we do we do keep in touch. Uh, as as do the cast. You know, we we had the amazing. Uh, you know when they did Brastoff live at uh, at the Royal Albert Hall twenty odd years later, and it and it sold out like that, and that that was an incredible evening, which we dedicated to Pete. His uh, his his missus was there, and his and his two kids, and it was you know we 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 miss him very much, but he's he's very present in that film, and uh, and he is throughout many of his performances. Let's just touch briefly on that um, Brastoff Live thing. Just remind us, for people listening who don't know what actually happened, it, it, was, it was basically that the, the, the band were there, weren't they, playing at the same time as the film? Yeah, they've, they've done it a few times with, you know, epics like Gladiator and Jaws and things like that, where they have a live orchestra. And, and Brastoff was the first British film that was chosen to get the same treatment in that the film goes up on the big screen as usual, but underneath it are the band playing live. So that part of the soundtrack is taken out and they have a conductor who uh, who does it to the, the absolute second. And uh, it was an incredible experience. It's a very moving film anyway. Um, and this was extra special to see, to see a packed out Albert Hall, which is, you know, where the the denouement of the, the film set anyway. It was it was magical. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous. And you're absolutely right. It has uh, led on to you being sort of, in a way, sort of associated with Brass. I mean, I've produced two programmes that you've presented for me, which is Brass Britain on Radio 2, four-parter, and then I think we did one for Radio, for the World Service called on How Brass Conquered the World. So... So you seem to you seem to become synonymous with brass in some way, shape. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm ve- I'm very proud to be so. I mean, the the experience of I would recommend the experience of of listening to it live so much. To me. the last time I was I was up uh, visiting the band, uh, and my dad had passed away, and so I asked him to play the the Florentine March because he he had that at his funeral, and I was holding a piece of paper at the time. And the thing was vibrating so much because that sound just travels through you, and it's an extraordinary experience. So uh, I, I would I would hate to to hear that disappear. I don't think it ever will, but I would love to do anything I could to safeguard it. You're absolutely right, and and you know we're going back to was talking about concertos or anches, orange juice as, as we as people uh, tend to call it. Um, you know, I love that piece of music anyway, but I I do actually think the brass version is 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 the most powerful, and it and it it, con, it conjures up, doesn't it? The it conjures up the, the Yorkshire and the and the Pennines, and you know straight away, doesn't it? Straight away, yeah. Ah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But but also the 
the skill and dexterity of them as musicians as well. It was a, a lad called Paul who did the solo for that, and we wa- we watched him record it, and absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Stephen, it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you and reminisce about uh, uh, Brastoff, which is now 26 years ago, I think, something like that. It's getting, yeah, it's coming up for 25, I think, so, yeah. And you've not changed a bit, of course, not changed a bit. Oh, bless you. He added hastily. <laughs> Thanks, Ashley. Cheers, mate. Distinct Nostalgia is produced by MIM, and there are loads more excellent shows to listen to on our website. Danny Rogers recalls growing up with 321's Dusty Bin. So my first encounter with Dusty Bin was my dad sort of wheeling him out as a young boy. I had no clue what this thing was, and I was frightened, of course, but as it went on, I was like, oh, this is my new best friend. <laughs> and I was one of the lucky few that actually had one in their bedroom. Kathy Gorey discusses the legacy of Rosemary, the telephone operator. Hello, hello. I had an effect on a bunch of Gen Xers, or maybe I was their first female crush or something, but I meet men, some of them quite powerful now, who grew up watching me. You know, watching Rosemary, rather. But I thought, this is nuts. And they let me do pretty much what I wanted to do. Everything was always rhyming. Some you call the police department, Hong Kong Kong. And that's that's what I thought Rosemary would sound like. And John Boy himself talks about his childhood with the Waltons. It was really one of the great ensemble TV shows. I mean, we had 11 regulars. And although the story was told from John Boy's point of view, one of the great things about the show was the main story could be about the little kid one week or it could be about the grandparents so you had all this wonderful generational comprehensiveness about it and so i would call it first and foremost a great ensemble these programs and many more are available at distinctnostalgia.com or wherever you get your podcasts subscribe to be notified whenever a new episode becomes available and if you like what we do then please consider supporting us on patreon every penny helps us to make even more amazing content just for you go to distinctnostalgia.com and click on the donate button thank you for listening and bye for now distinct nostalgia is brought to you in partnership with life rooms and mercy care nhs foundation trust We've lots of activities for you to do at home at liferooms.org. Staying well, staying home.